Welcome everyone to the Cup of Coffee podcast with me, your host, Tom Dillon. This is being recorded live at our weekly online meeting and broadcast around the world. Today's topic is money, the real game with Dylan Denitia. Um, um, before we start, I'd like to say by way of a disclaimer that today is a wonderful discussion, but that nothing said here constitutes financial advice, and you should always take professional advice before investing your hard-earned cash. There may be the odd unplanned swear word along the way as well. Um, the format for today is, as usual, that uh, Dylan will speak for us for a little while, and then we'll be taking questions from the floor, so get any questions that pop into your head ready. Uh, in terms of Dylan, with a background in economics, financial markets, commodities, trading, property investing, and decades of spiritual study, Dylan shows why so many financial freedom seekers stay poor and how to ensure that your dreams of a better life do not remain unfulfilled. Uh, good morning, Dylan. Oh, my brother. <laughs> Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm very well indeed. How are you? Uh, what's going on with you? You're looking, um, you're looking quite shiny and fresh. Well, every day is a shiny and fresh day, right? Sounds like absolute mumbo jumbo, but why, why, uh, why change a habit of a lifetime? Yeah, things are really good, actually, Tom. Um, it's been a pretty interesting year, I think, for us all. Uh, I feel very blessed not to have had, you know, not to suffer at the sharp end and, and have been able to really, in a small way, help those who have been. So, yeah, really a blessed year, I have to say. How about you? All good? Yeah, I've not been helping anyone. Um, and uh, but, <laughs> but Hel Helping that yourself, I hope. Absolutely, helping myself, and uh, no, hopefully uh, the lady downstairs has got a bad ankle. I sometimes go and check; she's okay, so I, I call that a win. Um, uh, well, a service uh, to humanity. Well, this is it. Well, one of the things, uh, as you know, I love about you is is your. I think you have a. I'm going to ask you about it later, but you have a not to not to ruin the thing, but you have a constant desire to sort of help people. Have you always had that? Uh, yes, and uh, you know it. Pardon the accidental swear word, but it's such a fucking cliche now, isn't it? You know, this idea that we want to make the world a better place and we want to help people and we want to, uh, you know, reach out the hand of friendship. I think it's become a bit of a cliche. And I think that um, it's almost become a marketing buzz, you know, certainly from the early days of corporate social responsibility, kind of back in the late 90s, early 2000s. I think this idea of helping people has become a bit of a cliche and making a difference has become a bit of a cliche so much so that I've stopped using the terms in fact because they make me cringe the idea of um, being someone that likes to help it does make me cringe but essentially uh, yes it, it's it's always been inside me um, I guess from the very first there's a photograph on my mother's mantelpiece uh, which is me on the uh, in, in uh, not on the front page uh, but in the local press having written a letter to Santa Claus at six years old to give my Christmas presents away to the Ethiopian famine appeal. Um, you and I are both old enough to remember that, so back in kind of 1984. And uh, I mean, what the fuck I thought starving Ethiopians could do with a BMX bike, I don't know, I have no idea. Um, but there was something in me that saw that on the television. Um, and I didn't know at the time whether to send my gifts to the scraggly looking fellow Bob Geldof or the starving children in Ethiopia, but it turns out I sent them to Ethiopia. Um, but I lost track of that. And I think that's really what brings us to today. You know, I lost track of this idea that, um, you know, money is a flow of love, a force for good, it's fuel for impact. And I did lose track of that, um, particularly with my years in financial services. Um, and I think now we've found a kind of a, a beautiful, happy medium. Cool. Um, well, uh, without further ado, do you want to speak to us for a bit? How do you want to play it? Yeah, I'm absolutely happy to. So, yeah, thank you again. I think this is the third time I've kind of, shared some time with you isn't it I think once was face to face in Manchester and we've done a couple of these haven't we 
Um, cool. So really, really grateful to, that that you would want me back, to be fair, and grateful to everyone who's here for having me back. Uh, thank you for, to those of you that just joined. Um, I was really late posting the link, I have to say. I posted it at 10 past nine this morning. Uh, so thank you to those of you that are joining me from having seen that link really late. I, what I'd love to share with, with everybody today is a kind of a, a reversion back to the, the purpose of money, the purpose of wealth, the purpose of capital, um, and perhaps in doing that, to show why we have, um, as individuals, as a collective, as a species, perhaps lost our way with money, perhaps lost our way um, with economics, perhaps lost our way with, you know, doing, um, I, I, I guess, things that are meaningful to us, but also meaningful to people, planet, flora and fauna. So let me start by um, having a, a, a quick look at you know, this idea of capitalism, everyone talks about how capitalism is broken. Um, and then there are others that talk about how capitalism is not broken. And there's this argument between whether it is or it, or, or it, is, or it isn't. Um, there's a big swing or big, big push in some sections of the world that I operate in. Mainly, these are the bead wearing barefoot sections of the world that I operate in, which have this fantasy of uh, a world without money. And so my work with the kind of, you know, with this, uh, what I call the woo-woo set, of, of which I am absolutely part of, my work with those individuals is to empower that section of society economically. Um, and I don't wholly fit in there, but I try my best. On the other half of my kind of existence, we have the, the investors. And, you know, as you know, I run the Gold Bullion Buying Club and we've got a property portfolio and blah, 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 you know, all the, the usual stuff that we do in the modern economy. Um, and so with that section of society, you know, I, what I find is that they need perhaps empowering spiritually. So my work now is about empowering the spiritual energy economically and the economic energy spiritually. And let's have a look at kind of both of those things. So first of all, capitalism, you know, where did it start? What is it? And without going into a history of money, I think we've all heard about fucking people exchanging beans for this and beans for that, and the advent of gold, like everybody talks about that. But that's not the important thing. The important thing here is the definition of capital and how it is distinct from the definition of wealth. And so capitalism started way back when there were only a small number of individuals who had access to money, funds, resources that they could use to not only build their own kind of uh, uh, wealth or their own empires, but also to do it in a way that you know, really lifted society up. So this is where this idea of trickle down started. I don't know whether anyone's familiar with the concept of trickle down. I'm not talking about Friday night down a back alley after 10 pints. I'm talking about how you, um, you know, people at the top make the money and then essentially that creates jobs, that creates consumption, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it makes the world a much, much better place. Well, in the olden days, and I use the term olden days very loosely, um, in the olden days, there were some industrialists who, if you remember, you look at a lot of the central business districts in, in the UK and you see rows and rows of terraced houses and those terraced houses were built for the workers, weren't they, essentially, by the industrialists in the towns and cities. And so you had this kind of um, symbiotic relationship between 
workers and consumers who essentially were the workers as well and the industrialists who had access to capital that could use that capital in order to create jobs and make the world a better place and sure there was some division from between those that had and those that didn't have and the industrialists had you know nicer horses and carts and then nicer cars and bigger houses and bigger manners um, and you know the workers ate shittier food walked everywhere and you know in essence cleaned the horse shit but in essence it was a symbiotic relationship and there was a, 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 a kind of a, a mutual respect, if you like. And then what happened is that capital started to be available to all of us. Like everybody could get access to capital. I remember talking to dad back way back in 2011 when I took on my first lease option you know, I'm a hundred thousand pounds near on in debt at that time, yet I've got the keys to, you know, a, a four bedroom house that I'm about to convert into a six bedroom HMO that is going to net me a thousand pounds a month. And this is coming from a hundred thousand pounds in debt, working at the uh, at a magazine factory, sticking lipsticks onto Cosmopolitan magazine for, I don't know, 0.02p a lipstick or something stupid like that. Now I've got the keys to this property that's going to make me a grand a month. I remember at that time saying to dad that the real estate market was never intended for Joey's like me in huge amount of debt that understand a few strategies to start building our property empires. It was never meant for us. And sure enough, we start seeing that rules are changing and it's, it's, I mean, it's still a, a very viable asset class, of course, as we all know. But my point is this, things changed. When we started to get access to capital, capitalism changed in form. And what happened is people stopped looking at capital as a flow of love, as a force for good, as fuel for impact, as a way to make a more meaningful world and a more meaningful species, an evolved species. People stopped looking at uh, capital, capital and money like that and started to create wealth. And the distinction between wealth and capital is simply capital is used to make the world a better place. Wealth is used to make individual lives and family lives and individual companies stronger, not necessarily the world stronger or the species stronger. So in essence, capital is flow and wealth is stagnant. Wealth is hoarded and grown capital is used as a flow. Does it make sense? Of course it makes sense. Fairly straightforward stuff, right? And so with that transition came a shift in the way that people started to look at money. And money started to look like and feel like and be used like and thought about in a way that was very individualistic, in a way that said, you know, this is for me, I'm growing, and this is kind of, this is my money, and it became a win-lose game. And what we need to do is somehow, and I've got some ideas on how we do that, somehow we need to start looking again at the definition of money in our individual and collective lives. We need to look again at the shape of our economy. And we need to start thinking about how we build an economy and how we re-energize. This is where a bit of the woo-woo stuff comes in. So building the economy is fairly, uh, um, normal language, but this is where the woo-woo stuff comes in. We need to re-energize the energy, uh, or we need to re-energize the economy with the energies of love and compassion and courage and congruence and community and, com and, and connection, creativity, because at the moment what we find is that um, people think about money and they transact with money 
under the energies of fear and greed and scarcity. And we saw that last year. And by the way, it doesn't matter whether you are, you know, the, 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 the street kid that lives in the sewers that we support in, in you know, South America or, 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 or Southeast Asia, or whether you're the billionaire running off to New Zealand and, and building your bunker in anticipation of, uh, of D-Day, uh, or Doomsday rather, not D-Day, um, of Doomsday. It doesn't matter whether you're at the top or the bottom. What we saw last year is that for that brief moment before the billionaires really started to um, uh, 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 take advantage of the crisis, essentially, for that brief moment, everybody thought that the, 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 the shitstorm is coming. And people at the bottom were in fear of never having enough and not surviving. And people at the top were in fear of losing it all. And fair enough, it was only you know that brief moment right at the beginning of this crisis where everybody was in fear. And it just goes to show you how quickly the human species can kind of retract back into fear and how quickly and how consistently the economy is able either to keep us in fear or to, to shackle us back into fear, to pull us back into fear. Does that make sense? So it, it's kind of this idea that we are locked into fear and greed and scarcity by an economy that essentially was of our own creating. The economy is not separate from us. The economy is the product of essentially 7.8 billion chimp minds, unevolved primitive brains operating through fear and greed and scarcity thinking. And sometimes we wrap it up in nice um, language like corporate social responsibility or wanting to make a difference or, you know, all of these kind of terms that we have now come, as I said at the beginning of our talk, have now become a cliche. We wrap up our um, selfish, fearful, scarcity-driven economic activity in, these, in this language. Um, but essentially, when we dig down through years and years and decades and decades and generations and generations of uh, what I call money wounds, we see that ultimately it's fear and greed and scarcity that's driving our every move. Even though we might want to build beautiful houses of multiple occupation um, for you know people to live in, and you know even my my dad and my wife and I have um, allocated part of our portfolio on kind of peppercorn rents to the Syrian refugee crisis and all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, when you look at most people's economic activity, it is driven by fear and greed and scarcity, and that is not anybody's fault. That is just the way that we have uh, shaped and perpetuated the economy. Um, so hopefully that kind of background is, 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 is useful because what then happens is that we start living under these illusions that we've become very familiar with. They become part of what we call the collective unconscious. So I don't know if anybody's familiar with the work of Carl Jung. He talks about the collective unconscious, which is this kind of underlying set of rules and paradigms that communities and, and, and in fact our entire species, particularly with the economy, live by. And the collective unconscious kind of keeps us locked in these illusions. The first illusion is, and I'm talking quite quickly because there's a lot to cover, um, and I know that we've probably got, uh, what have we got, about three hours together, is that right Tom? <laughs> um, so the first illusion is the illusion of scarcity. We alluded to it uh, a moment ago when we talked about what drives people's behavior, particularly economic behavior. It's the illusion of scarcity. And that is the illusion that if, um, if, if, if I don't win, somebody else will. So the illusion that there's not enough to go around, the illusion that I am essentially um, fighting for resource, I'm fighting to get to the top. And that illusion of scarcity is 
absolutely contradictory to the reality of the world that we live on. You know, we all know, I think academically, there's enough food to go around, there's enough clean water to go around, um, you know, there's, there's enough toilets to go around, there are enough books to go around, there's enough of everything to go around. It is not a, a, a resource issue, it's a distribution issue. And that distribution issue is linked directly to the conversation we had earlier around you know, the difference between capital and wealth. You know, when we think about a wealth mindset, that mindset essentially locks us into hoarding and keeping for ourselves and growing and growing and growing and growing just in case we lose it one day. We're not able to release it. So what happens is when you live for wealth creation, not capital creation, you, you get this kind of hoarding mentality that is both um, triggered by and perpetuated by the illusion of scarcity. The second illusion is the illusion of separation. And they're all interlinked. You know, there's a fine line between all of these and hopefully we'll be able to kind of see the connection. There's a fine line between all of these. So the next illusion is the illusion of scarcity. Um, sorry, the illusion of separation. And the illusion of separation that says, um, you are you, I am me, they are they, instead of I am you and I cannot survive in the absence of you and you are me and you cannot survive in the absence of me and I am that, this is that, all this is that and essentially what we're saying is from a, um, again we, we kind of, we, we, we stray between what sounds fairly normal and fairly, fairly rational to then the other end of the spectrum which sounds absolutely fucking crazy and this idea that when you look at the chemical construct of all matter on this planet and you put it under a microscope, you put you under a microscope, you put me under a microscope, you put this pen under a microscope, this phone under a microscope, we all look the same. And essentially, um, at a, at a, I, I'm not an expert in quantum mechanics, but at a quantum level, we are all exactly the same. We are all made of the same stuff. We're all made of stardust. We are all essentially bundles of energy. And if you want to think about this in a kind of more practical term, you only have to go kind of, you know, you'd go 200 meters up in the, in the air and you start seeing a planet where you cannot distinguish between, all you can distinguish between is land and water, right? You can't distinguish between the different life forms, leave alone um, different races, let alone different genders, let alone different communities, let alone different towns, let alone different bank accounts. Like you just cannot distinguish between us when you start kind of heading out into the cosmos. And the further you head out into the cosmos, the less you can distinguish. Like we are so small in the kind of the ever expanding universe that to start thinking of ourselves as in competition with each other, in battle with each other, is absolute fucking lunacy. And the only reason we do it is because we still operate from our five very primitive senses that lock us into survival mode. And so the, the illusion of separation means and is translated in business and in property and in investment and in money by the practicalities of competition. Everyone's in competition with each other and everybody plays the win-lose game. And again, even though sometimes we say we're playing the win-win game, deep down, if we're operating from a place of fear and scarcity and greed, essentially we're never truly playing the win-win game. Does that, make, does that make sense? And one of the things I didn't put on um, 
our, uh, you know, on the post this morning is that, you know, I'll take stock of, you know, everybody that's live in the room today. And actually, if you let me know, you know, how many uh, downloads you get on the podcast, we will contribute that number of days of solar power to tribal schools who suffer, who suffer just debilitating power cuts. And, you know, that comes from a, a place of absolute abundance thinking like there's it doesn't matter whether there's a thousand downloads of the podcast and a thousand people in the room or 10 downloads and, and 10 people in the room it just doesn't matter because I know in my ability to give unrestrained comes an, an ability to receive unrestrained and this is where the scarcity of separation uh, the illusion of separation and scarcity lock us into kind of financial practices and business practices, commercial practices that really are kind of driven by this need to hoard and to grow and to maybe give some of it away, but not to start from a place where I, I make my money in order to create a world worth living in. I'm, I want to make my money not just in meaningful ways, but I want my money to mean something. And it's this idea that the real game of money was always, always to create a better world. The real game of money was always to kind of lift others out of poverty. The real game of money was always to essentially help us as a species evolve from, you know, dragging fucking clubs around and living in caves to all of us living in the equivalent of penthouses. And I, I don't know what your equivalent of a penthouse in Manchester would be. I think you've got some pretty nice ones up there, but I know in Peterborough, um, it's not quite the same. But you get my point. You, the metaphor is that the, the, the meaning of money was always, the real game of money was always to, you know, make this world a better place, make um, our species, prime our species for evolving. Um, and then you've got kind of, you know, the the, the other aspect of this, which is that's how people think about money and that translates into how people transact with money. But on the other side, you've got this kind of knock on effect that the illusion of scarcity and the illusion of separation translates into, and we've just alluded to this, translates into the way that we consume. When I don't consider myself to be you or to be um, the community you know, living in destitute poverty or to be the ocean or to be the sea turtle or to be the dolphin or the tuna or whatever it is. When I don't consider myself to be at one completely with all life form, I start to make consumption decisions that perhaps are inadvertently creating this coercive impact on the world around me. Whereas as soon as I start thinking about myself as one, with everything around me, I'm a little bit more conscious about what I buy and how I buy. And, you know, I'm really excited, for instance, about the blockchain and how supply chains will be just revolutionized by the blockchain, because we will, you know, this, this kind of this black maca powder that I've got here, you know, I will be able to see exactly where this came from, um, you know, who grew it, who picked it, who processed it, um, where the plastic for the for the for the wrapping came, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, how many carbon miles were, were uh, uh, um, how many food miles were uh, needed to get it to me, what the carbon impact of this this purchase was. And then I can start making more conscious decisions. And that is where the blockchain is going. Now, right, right now, we don't have that data. 
So all we can really do is start thinking about our habits in the whole. So for example, Pri and I, um, we did the calculation at the beginning of last year that we would need to plant 8,000 new trees on, on virgin land essentially in order to offset our carbon footprint as a growing family. So we hope to you know, be a growing family at some stage in the near future. Um, and as a family of four, which is kind of our intention with the kind of, the, you know, I wanna take my children when they come around to all the charity projects that we support. I want to show them, you know, everything that I've been exposed to in Africa, in Asia, etc., to show them, um, you know, this, this, well, exactly what I'm talking about, this idea of oneness and, and our responsibility to people, planet, flora and fauna. And that involves carbon miles, which of course involves um, offsetting that carbon. Um, so this is not about sacrificing. This is not about not having the, the, the supercar. This is not about um, saying, you know, I, I'm going to cut back on all this stuff and live a, a frugal, um, pretty fucking dark life, actually. Like, why would you choose that kind of life when you have possibly, um, you know, everything at your disposal. Like who, who's to say that this isn't heaven in essence? I don't know whether, uh, you know, anybody's religious or not, and, but let me use heaven as a metaphor. Like who's to say that planet earth isn't fucking heaven? Like if somebody comes down from Mars, that horrible environment on Mars and comes to this beautiful place, um, who's to say that we're not living in heaven? And that all of these luxuries that we have at our disposal, you know, the cars, the houses, the hot taps, the filtered water, um, you know, the, the coffee beans that are shut out of a cat and, you know, all this kind of stuff that we have at our disposal. Who's to say that that's not heaven? And what we do is we kind of sometimes, particularly in my woo-woo world, we kind of, we, we dismiss all of these material luxuries in order to kind of, develop ourselves metaphysically and what you see in the economic world and in the material world is that there's this division between um you know material thinking and meta well that's for them like if you wear beads and you walk around barefoot then uh you know you crack on with your vegan maca powder um and we will crack on you know making the money building the roads etc 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 um and i know that that's a really crude distinction but essentially, that's the distinction in people's minds. And I come back to, you know, something we talked about earlier, which was, you know, my role here, having been in both camps, is essentially to economically empower the spiritual energy and spiritually empower the economic energy and start bringing this kind of um, the, 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 the melding, the metaphysical and the material. And why should we do that? Because ultimately, that is the only way that we will, as a species, unlock ourselves from this perpetual economic survival mode that we've locked ourselves into. And what do I mean by that? Um, I don't know if anybody's familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but essentially it's a pyramid-shaped business model that has at the very bottom the our absolute survival needs. So this is food and clothing and shelter. And then right at the top, it's, it, it, he calls it self-actualization. Um, in, in the woke world, we call it awakening, but let's stick with self-actualization for now. Um, and essentially self-actualization, he interpreted as or, or defined as being the best that you can be. Now, interestingly enough, he also talked about self-transcendence. Um, after he got annoyed and sick of people talking about themselves being self-actualized, 
he, 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 I can't remember, he didn't publish the paper and I can't remember how they found this, but essentially he drafted a paper which said, if you are self-actualized, you would never talk about yourself as self-actualized. So because so many people are talking about themselves as self-actualized, I'm gonna create another level, which is self-transcendence. And that is being the best you can be for the world around you. And essentially I feel what stops us evolving to that place is that we keep ourselves and the economy keeps us locked in survival mode. It keeps us fearful of losing it all, or it keeps us fearful of never having enough. And that kind of plays on the people at the top and the people at the bottom. If you think about this in our own lives, um, you know, I know, for example, uh, Pri and I, at the beginning of, of this kind of situation, uh, we just on March the 12th last year, we just took the keys to a beautiful grade two listed Georgian, property in a load of uh, just stunning like I could never have dreamed of living in a place like that and you know that comes associated with a slightly bigger mortgage and blah 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 now you think if we had stayed if Priya and I had stayed in the one bedroom apartment um, that we lived in when we first got married and not upgraded and if I'd carried on driving the wire registration Fiesta that I'd actually borrowed off my sister, it was so shit that she didn't want to take it to London. So she left it for me to borrow. Um, but if I'd stayed driving that car, et cetera, et cetera, like if our living costs hadn't gone up, if we didn't have so many holidays and didn't go traveling so much, et cetera, then we would, I feel as an individual, I would be able to reach that point of self-actualization much, much sooner. And I'll just give you a, 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 an example of that. This last year, while we've been really blessed not to have had the financial challenges and not to have sleepless nights financially, actually I've been really distracted from doing the best I can do for humanity because I've been just so swallowed up by this, this Georgian property refurb, which has turned into like a much bigger job. So my point is this, that actually in my pursuit of living in a bigger house, which is essentially what it is to have more square footage that I can swing my cat around in. In that pursuit, I have been distracted from my own self-actualization, from my own self-transcendence, from being a human being that can absolutely deliver for 7.8 billion people on the planet. And I know that that is an extreme way of thinking, but if you bring it down to your daily activity, you know, how much, does that new car, does that new house, does that slightly more expensive than we'd budgeted for holiday, um, do all of these trinkets that we afford ourselves, how much do they play into our locking ourselves into survival mode? Does that make sense? And for most people, it's financial survival mode. Most people are locking themselves into economic survival mode, which actually is you know, the biggest, biggest obstacle self-actualization it's the biggest obstacle to you know essentially having sleepful nights it's the biggest obstacle to tapping into the very essence of you it's the biggest obstacle to looking at the world around you and wanting relentlessly to make it a better place because we live in a world where unless you have financial security you are not deemed a worthy individual and that comes a lot from within you know a lot of us link our net worth to our self-worth and so we were in this situation that, you know, we'll help the world when when we've helped ourselves. You know, this idea that charity starts at home is a bit fucking ludicrous, really. I mean, sure, you can't give what you don't have. But the very essence of charity is that it is uh, it, it is an it is an outward activity. 
So for charity to start at home, it's just a slight paradox that we've all begun to believe. My point is that if you can't give a penny out of the pound, you're never going to give you know, £100,000 out of a million or a million out of 10 million or 10 million out of 100 million, right? So we've kind of, we've, we've gone winding around the houses and I hope that that provides some context. It hopefully provides some uh, different kind of uh, thought triggers. But in essence, you know, I've boiled all of this down. And so how do we fix this? Like, what is the process for an individual to take all of these uh, pretty esoteric ideas um, and philosophies, and I, I understand that, you know, particularly when I talk unscripted, uh, we can go, you know, we're we, we going fucking Peterborough to Manchester via Wales, like I get that. Um, but how do we, um, I don't need any agreement in the chat box around that, thank you. Like no whys in the chat box for that. Um, but how does an individual take all of this thinking and if they resonate with it, start to do something about it? 12 practices. So this is the time at which you may want to take notes if you've got pen and paper at hand or sit cross-legged in lotus position and, and start absorbing it all in. 12 practices. Six of them are what I call the, 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 the metaphysical experience of life. So they are intended to optimize your metaphysical experience of life so that you can then optimize your material expression of life and then the, the back six so in essence if you want a, a kind of a, 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 a what i consider to be quite a sexy term in essence your frequency is your real currency too many people start trying to make money without really raising their personal vibrations without artificially bringing themselves out of this kind of fearful scarcity thinking so that's where the first six practices really are very very important practice number one the practice of acceptance, the practice of acceptance. Now, acceptance comes in two kind of, two, two, it's a two-pronged attack, essentially. One is an acceptance of the world around you. It is about saying the world is where it is, and I can't do anything about the way it is, but I can do something about the way it is going to be. How many of us fight the world as it is? How many of us kind of, you know, particularly those of us that want to make the world a better place, how many of us get caught in how shit it is, essentially, and how unjust it is, and how, you know, all these kind of oligarchs and billionaires are on some kind of crazy um, uh, scheme for world domination, or how, um, whatever, whatever, you can't leave your door unlocked today, and, you know, all this kind of stuff, we try and fight the world as it is, instead of saying, you know what, the world is as it is. I can't do anything about it today, but I can certainly shape tomorrow. The next part of acceptance is I am how I am and I am where I am. I am who I am. I can't do anything about that, but I can do something about who I am going to be and how I am going to be. And when you start, I get goosebumps when I talk about acceptance because I lived most of my life in non-acceptance, particularly in volunteering for the United Nations in Rwanda and seeing, you know, human suffering at, at its worst. You, you, how do you accept that? It's not about accepting that you don't want to make a change or can't make a change, but it's just about saying it is where it is. The world is where it is. I am where I am. And from here, I will rise. And that puts you in this frame of mind that is just like, okay, I, am, I, I can find flow now. I'm not fighting with the world. Practice number two, 
awareness. So this is about you know, really taking a deep breath at every minute, every moment of the day and being present in the moment. And it's about understanding what is required of you right now in this moment. Of course, if you can't accept the world as it is, and you're, you know, you're kind of hating on the world around you, and worse, you're hating on yourself, how could you ever understand what is required of you? How could you ever find that flow? You can't, can you? Because you're not in flow, you're always in friction. You, even when you take a deep breath, you've got all these kind of voices in your mind. So awareness, acceptance first, then awareness. Practice number three. And by the way, um, I, I, I didn't mention this, Tom, because I wanted to spring it on you just in case you said no. I'm just joking. Uh, I do. There is a five day free um, training all around this. It's an hour a day. It's a I call it the love money miracle experience. If I'm all right to share that URL at some stage, just give me a thumbs up on the video. Um, I, I don't want to do anything that actually, no, I don't care what you say. I, I, of course I do. Practice number three. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate that. Uh, so www.lovemoneymiracle.com lovemoneymiracle.com. It's five day experience. It is unbelievable. Um, and we kind of, we unpick all of this in a very structured fashion, five days, five exercises. Um, and when you go to the lovemoneymiracle.com page, you'll see everybody else's experience. It's pretty mind blowing stuff. Practice number three, the practice of appreciation. Now this is not gratitude. This is an appreciation of kind of everything that makes you up. So I am the, I, I am the psychology or at least part of the psychology of my great, 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 great grandma. I've never met her, don't even know who she is. Um, I couldn't even put her on a, on a family tree because it just goes back so far. But I am, there is, there, my, my, my ancestral DNA is such that I think quite similarly to how she did. And of course, you know, we, we see this with our parents, don't we? We see, you get to a certain age and you start saying to yourself, shit, man, I'm turning into my dad. Um, and we've done this in the refurb. I said it to Priya, you know, even after years and years and years and years of awareness and practice, I still, in this latest refurb, have felt parts of my dad coming in where I'm just not hitting buy on the, 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 the really expensive skirting board order because I'm thinking to myself, shit, can I get it cheaper anywhere else? And I, you just have to kind of, you have to really have a chat with yourself and say, just, just fucking buy the skirting board. Like you need it, it's there, you like it, get it. It's this level of conscious awareness and most people don't have that conscious awareness. So this is not about totally eradicating your ancestral DNA and your ancestral history and everything that made you this is about understanding it, being conscious of it, and being able to say, yeah, that is what made me. And I love what made me, but actually I need to break that cycle. And I need to be conscious about breaking the cycle and take what's good along with me. So my parents were the epitome of giving, you know, still they, they just give and give and give and beautiful human beings. And I will take that with me, but there's also parts of their money story that doesn't work for the modern world and certainly doesn't work for, for me. So practice number three, appreciation. You then, so those three practices are gonna help you to turn your fear into courage. When you accept the world for what it is and you're aware of the present moment and you appreciate everything that you have been, now you've turned that fear into courage. Now what you can do is turn the illusion of separation 
into the reality of congruence and unity. So once you've accepted, once you're aware, once you have appreciated what has made you, you can start working on practice four, which is the practice of creating an identity, so identity from the very core of who you are. Of course, you can't do that if you don't appreciate where you've come from. If you're not in the present moment and you can't accept yourself for who you are, you can't create an identity that is essentially the one that's driven from your heart. I think Rumi has a quote, which I'm about to butcher, but it's something like, you know, follow the silent call of your heart. It will not lead you astray. How many of us aren't doing the things that we'd love to be doing? How many of us aren't being the people we would love to be being because we feel like we should be doing something else or we should be being other people until at some point in the future, we will buy ourselves the freedom to do what we want and be who we want. Does that make sense? Like I wanted to be uh, a barefoot bead wearing speaker about money. And for my first few years on stage, you know, I would wear a jacket and I'd kind of comb my hair in a kind of a, a, a made in Chelsea style fashion. And I'd have my Jeffrey West shoes on because I thought what I need to do is build a reputation, buy myself the freedom to go on stage and speaking barefoot and wear beads. Now I'm speaking in my own kitchen, so I am in barefoot and I've got my fucking beads on. But the reality is I could have done that seven years ago. Now that's as a small, tiny, stupid little example, but in our bigger lives, how many of us aren't living the identity of who we really want to be, that empowering identity that does what it wants to do, when it wants to do, who it wants to do it for, how it wants to do it, you know, where it wants to do it. Because we're living the identity that others have, Kind of imposed on us and in essence we're living the identity of separation separation from our own thoughts separation from our own words separation from our own actions you then get to practice number five this is the practice of setting strong intention and you can't set strong intention that comes from your core unless you know who you are at the core and who you want to be at the core so intention rests upon identity identity rests upon appreciation of where you've come from appreciation rests upon awareness awareness rests upon acceptance strong intention once you've done all that now you can start really developing and fine-tuning the practice of intuition how many people are either fearful of trusting their intuition, can't hear their intuition, or decide to hear it and not follow it because they're living the identity of somebody else. They wanna do something, but actually they're living for the family around them, the world around them. They're living for what they think they should be, not what they really want to be. So your intuition, I consider it your inner tutor. And here's the thing, when you first start following your intuition, it's like your inner tutor is on fucking teacher training and it gets it wrong because it hasn't been taking class for long enough. So you have to allow yourself to get your intuition wrong. But so many of us live in such fear that we follow our intuition once, get it wrong and decide never to trust it again and retreat back into kind of the identities that we never wanted to live in the first place. So intuition rests upon strong intention because you've got to have a well-formed and strong intention in order for your body, your brain, your energy, your emotion, woo-woo land, the universe to know exactly where you want to go. And once you have all of that, then you can start listening to an intuition because it's leading you in the right way. Follow the silent call of your heart. It will never lead you astray. So that's the metaphysical stuff. When you start fine-tuning your metaphysical experience of life through acceptance, awareness, appreciation, identity, intention, and intuition, now you can go out into the world 
heart held high, congruent in thought, word and speech, accepting of the world around you in the present moment, appreciating everything you were, looking at everything you're going to be and say, yes, now I'm going out into the world, vibrating at a ridiculous high level of joy and bliss, enlightenment, love, compassion, all the beautiful stuff, not fear. And then you get round to the next six behaviors or practices. I'll go through these like literally two minutes. I think that's what we've got left, right? So the next six practices, how do you express yourself in the world materially in a way that brings deep, deep joy, deep fulfillment, and is not coercive on the world around you, but is creative in the world around you. You do that number one, by being able to see the synchronicity around you. So you'll be able to see possibility and synchronicity around you. Synchronicity is kind of coincidence. You know, how many times does something come your way? Maybe even this, maybe you're listening to this podcast or you're sat in the room and some of this stuff is exactly what you needed to hear. And this is a synchronous event. Maybe you're sitting there thinking this is a crock of shit and I absolutely did not want to be here. I came here to hear about property. Um, and in which case, uh, it's not a synchronous event and maybe you need to go right the way back round to acceptance and work your way around that circle. Um, but anyway, look, I hope it's not a waste of time for people. I really do hope this is useful in some way, shape or form. But you, you can't see the synchronicity and the possibility clearly unless you've got the strong in intuition to drive you. And the intuition won't be strong to drive you unless you've set positive and strong intent. You can't set positive and strong intent unless you've got this identity of who you are, what you stand for, what you stand against that comes from the core. You can't do that without an appreciation of where you've come from. You can't do that without being present in the moment. And you can't do that without accepting the world and for how it is and who, how you are, you for who you are. So seeing the possibility around you. Next. Once you see the possibility and the coincidences and you start to see what needs to be fixed, now you can dig deep and have a look at practice number seven, are we on? Practice number seven, now you can start looking at what gifts you have to share. How can you share the gifts that you have in a way that helps you solve the problems that you see and uh, you know, really take advantage of the synchronicities that you're able to spot now. How many people go straight to trying to understand what my gifts are without doing any of the other work? And how many of like how many courses and books and free seminars and you know how much of this stuff is out there that focuses immediately on turn your gift for baking blueberry muffins into a seven-figure business. It's not even that now. People are now talking about eight-figure and nine-figure businesses because somehow seven figures just isn't fucking sexy enough. But how many of, you know, how much marketing is out there trying to help people find their gift, but they never get people to do the other work. And you can't understand what your gifts are and you can't share your gifts until you've done the work. And the first six practices of the work, seeing the opportunity is part of the work, understanding and sharing your gifts in the spirit of unity essentially is the the, the next practice then you've got uh, uh, service so you've got seeing sharing and serving and what i mean by serving is really serving at scale sharing your gift is great this is a beautiful opportunity for me to share what i consider to be my gift to, you know, to everybody who's in the live session and everybody who's on the, on the podcast, you are all a, a real blessing to me. But if this is all I was going to do, 
we would never ultimately get to where we want to get to, which is, as I said, to economically empower the spiritual energy and spiritually empower the economic energy. So I need to be doing this all day, every day, for as many platforms as I possibly can, which is why, Tom, when you reach out to me and say, Dylan, can you do this? I'm like, yeah, definitely I can do it. But I haven't even told you a date yet, Dylan. Uh, but it doesn't matter. We'll find a date, Tom. And that's why it's such a blessing to be invited here, because I feel these are really important messages. So when I'm talking about serving, I'm talking about serving at scale. And again, how many business courses, how many investment courses, how many money making courses go straight to scaling, 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 scaling. But essentially all they're doing is scaling utter shit because people aren't in a position to scale effectively and in the spirit of unity and in a way that's going to create kind of a net positive impact because they themselves don't really know what they're scaling. How many people scale property businesses, for example, and then realize, actually, I didn't really want to be a property investor. I've got this HMO portfolio and fucking hell, I didn't want a HMO portfolio. But actually, I fell for the marketing that talked to me about gifts and scaling and money. And I didn't do the inner work. Finally, 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 finally. So imagine this on a kind of a 12 point circle the final quadrant is how you take everything that you are and everything that you've created and you start making decisions to consume to contribute and to conserve that mean when you fall off the edge of the planet when you take your last breath you have done your best to leave a what i call a net positive impact to be a net positive human so being able to make contribution, uh, consumption choices that maybe cost you a little bit more, but essentially align with your values, essentially, like I said earlier, you know, respect the supply chain, respect people, planet, flora and fauna, being able to contribute on a daily basis, financially or non-financially, but being able to contribute to the lives of others immediately in your circle of influence on a daily basis. And then finally, the practice of conservation. This is the final practice, practice 12, the practice of conservation, which for Priya and I, my wife and I, translates as you know planting 8,000 trees or um, going off to Little Cayman and helping in the coral regeneration project or whatever it is. It is about saying, you know, I have got the values and I've got the resources and the capital to invest in conservation projects where I, you know, I have a real impact. And when I take my last breath, I don't know whether I will have, you know, I don't know whether I will leave a net positive impact. I don't know if I have uh, screwed up too much in my past to turn that around to be net positive. But I do know that if we start taking this message out, that the real game of money is to be a net positive human being. And there's 12 practices that will get you there. I think if we keep taking this message out, one person, one thought, one transaction at a time, we start to do the two things that I think are fundamentally important for the evolution of our species, which is to economically empower the spiritual energy and spiritually empower the economic energy. So look, thank you so, so much. I think we are five minutes over time. So apologies for going a little bit over time. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you so much for, for, for listening. 
Uh, thank you very much indeed, Dylan. Um, all good stuff. Uh, people actually applauding. I don't think I've seen that before. Um, but maybe that's because I'm not usually looking. Uh, uh, Dylan is is incredibly generous um, uh, uh, with everything. And in this case, he's been generous with your time. So we can thank him for that, uh, which is uh, excellent stuff. He's the first speaker. He's gone over the time before we've even got to the questions. So by the way, if anyone needs to go, of course, it's your life and the, the leave button's there. And even better, of course, we're recording this as a podcast. And if you need to come in and check in on that later, you can check in on the next bit. But I'm, I'm refusing to leave without asking him a few questions because I've got ridiculous amount of notes here and I imagine you have too and we've got some questions going on the chat so I'm going to rattle through those I reckon we've probably got I'm going to do if he's up for staying for that long probably about 15 minutes on that just so we can try and give people some uh, to get some questions in there so um uh, uh but if you need to go and, and then that's obviously fine any if, if anyone's got any questions um uh, then pop those in the chat some brilliant quotes in there I think if we take one thing just one thing from today my favorite quote would be just buy the fucking skirting board um that's <laughs> that's easily I think that's the key message. You mentioned penthouses in Manchester. They're basically bigger caves. Um, so uh, that's good. Um, and I, I like the bit where you admonished yourself, where you said, does that make sense? Of course it makes sense. Because um, <laughs> you'd said it. Uh, another favourite bit of mine. Um, I wanted to know, first of all, I think the important question here, before we get into the, the, perhaps the meat of what you talked about, uh, I'm vegetarian, as I, I think you are, but uh, 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 um, are, you, are you missing Starbucks? Because I know that was one of your favourite places to work. Or now with your new fan, newfangled Georgian property, if things uh, if things moved on. Uh, no, the, the, the surprising thing about the commercial world is that now we can get Starbucks at home. Um, but of course that comes with a, a huge carbon footprint. Mm. And so what you have to do is add more trees to your tree quota because you enjoy drinking coffee out of disposable plastic pods. And so, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not missing, I'm missing the contact. I'm missing the human contact for sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, but in terms of the trinkets of life, no, not at all. I, you know, I think we live in a, a, a beautiful, situation where I can you know turn one tap on and I get ice water I can turn another tap on and I get boiling hot water I can press another button and I get fizzy water and you've got too many I, water I feel very blessed yeah I do feel very blessed too many water choices that's what I've learned um speaking of woodland and trees we're right behind you with that um you won't know this but uh, we, we, we're working towards trying to buy some UK woodland for the for the cover group and uh, been raising some money for that and we're going to continue to do that we can't compete with 8,000 trees in uh, where do you build where do you build where do you plant the trees otherwise you're not going to do it yourself so we're, we're funnily enough we, we came up with the calculation last year and essentially it's a it's a kind of it's a, a, a minimum of a five-year plan yeah so we've got to buy the land and then we've got to figure out what the best trees are so i don't know whether anybody's come across the concept of we've been tons of research over the last 12 months um on these kind of micro forests right and essentially these are tennis court sized um well forests micro forests and they come with you know you you basically plant a certain number of species in this tennis court sized piece of land yeah. and their native species um, to certainly the country but often to the region as well so it will just depend on you know where we're planting will very much shape what we plant and how many we plant you know my initial thought was okay and I've got it in the book somewhere actually um, so my initial thought was uh I need 16 acres. So here it is, um, 500 trees per acre, 16 acres, brilliant. It's gonna cost me about six to nine pounds per tree. Great, let's go look for 16 acres and you know, buy 8,000 saplings. And you know, it, would just, it doesn't work like that. Um, I thought it would, but that was my naivety. 
Um, but in essence, yeah, I mean, I've got a beautiful picture of a tree here. And yeah, so this, it, it, you have these visions and then you start bringing them to life. And I think quite often what people do is maybe assume that the vision wasn't theirs to have because they don't trust their intuition enough. Like I know that that is what I'm, I know that that's what I have to do because I, I trust my intuition. I, I'm listening to that silent call of my heart. Presumably one of the downsides of, of that plan is that, I mean, there's, don't get me wrong, it's all the balance and there's upsides. Presumably the level of tennis in any region that you do, that really drops off. Yeah, well, I fucking hate tennis anyway. I was always shit at it. So the more tennis courts that we can plant <laughs> over, the better. <laughs> uh, um, uh, good stuff. Uh, uh, Devil's Advocate, Thomas Sowell, one of the few economics books I've ever read and really liked, uh, despite the fact Thomas Sowell Thomas gets a bad rep sometimes. He said there's nothing more... Devil's Advocate this. He says there's nothing more common in, in the history of human existence than scarcity. And I probably butchered that quote. Presumably you'd diametrically disagree with that viewpoint. I think the thinking of scarcity drives us to do things that fundamentally keep us locked in our primitive senses. So when we think that money is scarce, resources are scarce, love is scarce, um, whatever, water is scarce, what we do is inadvertently keep operating from our kind of what I call the, 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 yeah, the five primitive senses. You know, we, we essentially operate in the same way as chimps. Rather than evolving to our sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th senses, I don't know how many we've got, but I certainly know that what we are able to perceive with our five senses is like a tiny slither of what is out there. Even if you look at the light spectrum, you know, we've got all sorts of fandangled machines now that can show us spectrums of light that the eyes cannot see and spectrums of sound that the ears cannot hear. Like it's only a matter of time before we start developing. If we can unlock from survival mode, if we can unlock from scarcity thinking, if we can actually go out into the world with our hearts held high, it's only a matter of time, I feel, until we develop and evolve enough that we are so distinct from chimps that we don't think like them and that we are able then, you know, our five, the sensory perception will evolve to what I call non-sensory perception, essentially is, is what we're getting at here. So I, I do believe that scarcity locks us into habit patterns that just are not conducive to the evolution of our species. Some of them are quite fun, sure, definitely, um, but they're not conducive to our evolution as, as a species of 7.8 billion sentient beings. Yeah, probably likely to be near 11 by the time we pop it, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Quite. So, uh, there might be some people on here with a few quid. There might be some people on here with 100 grand of their debt and probably everything in between. And you talked you talked about the uh, the 12-step program. I don't know if it's supposed to have, uh, you know, analogies with the AA, but um, presumably not. They're very different to 12-step program. It was accidental, but, but essentially, yeah. um, you know, when I start thinking about that, it is very much... Um, you know, how do we fix people's addictions to the way that they think about money and the way that they transact with money? So it was accidental, but essentially this is about fixing an addiction to the ways people think about money and the ways that they transact with money. Well, looking at someone at both ends, and you talked about both, and you've been both. You know, you're, you're always honest enough to share. You had you were you were deep in the hole at one stage as well. So, whether and one of the questions on the chat relates to this: when you when you're deep in the hole, say let's start there. 
how are you supposed to start with this sense of abundance, which you almost certainly don't feel? Would the answer be, well, look, look at these, look at the program you put together. Would that be the quick answer? Or yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know that there's a couple of people leaving. So Howard, thank you so much for being here. Really, really, really grateful. Um, so look, ab abundance is it's a way of thinking. Beginning, it, 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 it starts with a way of thinking because it's not necessarily you know, having lots and lots and lots of money to give away, but it is about being that individual that is, is so accepting of the world as it is and of you as you are, and is so present in the aware, uh, presently aware in the moment that is able to see opportunities to assist. Now, whatever that might be, you know, I remember um, all sorts of crazy stuff, you know, in terms of helping people and, some of it was with time. Some of it was with money that I didn't have. Some of it was with, you know, the sandwich that was left in, in the box as I walked through a tube station and then sat on the train absolutely fucking starving because I hadn't eaten all day and then remembered that I gave the sandwich away. Look, some of it, some of it, it doesn't all have to come down to money, but we live in an economic environment. We live in a, in a, in a world that's driven by money. So essentially it does. So how do you feel abundance when you don't have abundance? is that you start looking at the abundance that you do have and you start looking at yourself as, you know, an, an individual that has all the opportunity to go and create whatever it is that you want to create in terms of the life experience that you want to live. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's an easy excuse to fall back on that how can I think abundantly when I don't have any money? Like I said, I a hundred grand in debt and I still didn't change the way that I operated and I remember, in fact, I remember borrowing. So I just met Priya at the time. Um, and I remember borrowing from Priya around about 10,000 pounds, an inordinate amount of money. It was, she had about 16,000 pounds saved. Um, and I could have done with a whole lot, but I didn't want to take the whole lot. And that money was taken in borrowed in order to give to um, a chili plantation that had come to me following a talk I'd done for the Rwandan embassy. And I just had absolutely, and even now we talk about it, it's like it was unbelievable how quickly you looked at us as one being and as one bank account. And that's all I just said, that's in the spirit of unity. Um, but I remember doing this stuff and I never had at any stage Number one, I never had any fear that we would not make the money back. That's the first thing. So when you don't have any money, the thing that locks you into scarcity thinking is that you don't really have enough faith in yourself or in the world around you to be able to make the money. If you did, if you knew that you could give £10,000 away today that you don't have, if you knew that, you would make it back in the next two years or three years. Like if it was guaranteed how many 10,000 pounds would you give away? And I know that quite often people use this kind of technique to sell you big courses. Like what is a 10,000 pound mentorship when you know you're gonna make it back on your first property investment? And so people invest in this stuff, but people don't think about it from that's, that again is plugging into fearful thinking. Well, because if you don't do this, then you're not gonna make the money. So you might as well invest the 10 grand. So there's a different rationale and a different kind of manipulation behind that. But when I'm talking about abundance thinking, if you knew without fail, you had absolute faith in the world around you and in you and in your intuition and in your identity and in your intention setting and in your ability to see opportunity and your ability to share the gift. If you knew that that 10,000 pounds was coming back to you, 
you could create that, would you have any scarcity thinking left in you at all? I don't think you would. So the scarcity thinking is not rooted in the amount of money that you have. It is rooted in the amount of faith that you have in your ability to create your way out of that situation. Does that make sense? So the person who asked that question, does that make sense to you? Is that kind of a, a meaty enough answer? It's not rooted in the money. It's rooted in how much faith you have in your ability to create yourself out of this situation, to see the opportunity. Well, I think I asked the question, so yeah, uh, that makes sense. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> really to hear that, buddy. <laughs> yes, right. You should really give that ten grand back to her at some stage. I know she's uh, she wants that back. Um. <laughs> I guess a little side note on that. So I remember saying to her many, many times in those days. You know, once I've done, once I've made this, you know, I, I promise you, we will do something that you really want to do. And she'd always wanted to go to Australia, so we went to Australia for three months. Um, and it was beautiful and she took a year-long sabbatical from her work and we were up in northern Australia in Cairns and we're on a, on a hammock, you know, classic, on a hammock on the beach and um, she's on one hammock, I'm on the other and uh, my phone pinged, it was a Facebook notification and it was my wife that had posted on Facebook and had tagged me in and it was the whole story about how when I used to tell her this sitting in a lay-by, sharing a McDonald's, watching movies, downloaded movies on a shitty smartphone, that she never really believed it, but never had the heart to tell me that she didn't believe it. And now here we are um, and, and we've done it. And it, it, it is a, a blessing that we were able to. But do you know the real blessing? The real blessing is, is knowing that we would be able to. It's, it's the thoughts that come before the transactions. The thoughts are the blessing. And we are in control of those thoughts. The collective unconscious must never, ever guide you. If it had guided me as someone that's £100,000 in debt, borrowing 10 grand to give to a chili plant, which we lost, by the way, it was a shit project and I never really vetted it properly. I was still giving money away through guilt from whatever that was. Um, but if I'd listened to the collective unconscious, what would I have done there? Probably got a day job, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 pounds a year, whatever it might be, program management, project management was the world I came from, whatever. I did. But I didn't listen to that. And so the, the blessing is the ability to think in a different way and the ability to think in a different way then leads you to act in a different way. Mm. I can't compete with that, but I remember when I started in property, that sort of resonates with me because when I started in property, I had similarly nothing. I didn't have an underground in debt. I didn't have many beans in my pocket either. And um, for a couple of years, I just decided I was going to be successful, um, which sounds easy and really isn't. Uh, and so I was, people used to say to me, oh, you like when they met me, if they didn't see me for a while, I'd say, oh, you, you seem to have changed. You know, the, the way you are seems to have changed. It's because I decided I was going to do this thing. Um, and I'm not saying that came from a place of abundance. It may well have came from places of fear, greed, and, and uh, all the rest of it and, and shame. But, but I decided I was going to make it because I didn't like the other options and so i suppose i'm just agreeing with you that you can absolutely change your thinking and it can absolutely change your destiny in fact it's probably one of the few things that can i agree so we, there's a couple of questions i can see on the chat box shall i um shoot I'll take over shoot. the championship obviously tom yeah no i was, I was about to come on to i really want to make sure that people are here that that we, we definitely do answer them so i'm going to go just scroll to the top um Isu Hill, have I missed out something over the last 66 years? What's the woo-woo set? Hang around with me and I will make up for that 66 years of, of lost spiritual abundance, I absolutely assure you. Um, and I think most people have, not to jest on the point, but most people have missed out on that deep level 
of spiritual connection with themselves. And that is what has lead, led us to this absolute catastrophic situation that we find ourselves in as a species of 7.8 billion individuals that are just capable of so much fucking more. Like we're so, we're so capable as individuals and as a collective, uh, it, it baffles me that we've locked ourselves into this way of thinking. Um, but we are making the transition out, absolutely. So yes, I, I definitely think that the, the, the balance is there. And that really leads on to um, the, the next question, or which one of the other questions I saw, I think it was with, from Kathy. Kathy, thank you for, for posting the question. How do you engage with the economic world so that it has less influence on the way that you live? Is it the balance between your engagement with the woo-woo world and your role in the capital? Do you know, like that's exactly, exactly, exactly it. it is about economically empowering the spiritual part of you and spiritually empowering the economic part of you it is about understanding how to fine-tune and optimize your metaphysical experience of the world through the first six practices acceptance awareness appreciation identity intention and intuition that's the spiritual part the metaphysical part so that then you can really optimize the way that you go out into the world with your heart held high and manifest your material expression onto the world around you. So that's the economic part. It's the seeing the synchronicity, it's sharing the gift, it's serving at scale, it's consuming in a way that feels right to you, that doesn't do any damage, contributing and conserving the planet, contributing to people, conserving the planet so that you you, you become a net positive human being. So Kathy, you, you're like, you've hit the nail on the head. In fact, You've said in 30 seconds what's taken me an hour and a half to say, so thank you very much indeed. If you want a job, then definitely uh, come to me. Um, Diane Battersby, you've never lived, hate tennis. Actually, that's quite a lie. It's just that every year when Wimbledon comes on, Priya and I go and get our one-to-one -one tennis lessons. We're members of the tennis club. Would you believe we're members of the very tennis club that I want to grow trees over? Um, and I'm just not that good at it. Uh, from years and years of playing squash, actually, and, and badminton, it's messed my... Arm muscles. Anyway, um, Ryan Pinnock makes similar point in respect to raising your vibrations and conscious to conscious. Absolutely. And look, what I'm saying here is not new at all. Um, but what it is, and I love Ryan, by the way, what it is, is a bringing together of essentially, you know, financial services, economics, spiritual study, experience at the front, front line of poverty, the blessing of, of having the capital and the wealth and bring it all together in a way that I hope makes sense to both, you know, the material aspects of our brain and heart and the spiritual metaphysical aspects of our brain and heart. And I'm here to bridge that gap um, through an, a, a fundamental understanding of essentially how to create inordinate amounts of wealth and how to get yourself out of the financial shit, but also with a, 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 an ultimate desire to serve humanity, people, planet, flora and fauna. And I think when we bring the two together, I want to show people that it's possible. I really do. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely love Ryan. Um, Brill, Brill, Brill. Changes in evolution usually come from exterior influences, not our internal thinking. I don't really agree with that. Um, I have to say changes in our evolution come from our, the way that we think as a collective the way that we think as a collective, when we start thinking in a different way as a species, that's where the changes come. Sure, we could get hit by a fucking comet and that's gonna blow us up, uh, blow us apart. And it's gonna destroy our civilization. I was just reading the other day, actually, um, about what happened 42,000 years ago when the magnetic um, 
the, the, the magnetic energies basically flipped 42,000 years ago, uh, destroyed most of civilization, drove people into the caves. That's where we get the cave paintings 42,000 years. I get that. I absolutely get that. But I don't believe that that is just where they can come from. Maybe they have come from there up till now, but I don't believe that that's where they can just come from. So I, I, that's a bit of a shitty thing to say. I disagree straight away. I do agree that that's where they've come from, but I don't believe that that's what we have to rely on. Sorry, Clive, I, I absolutely didn't mean to be um, so fucking brutal there, my friend. Um, scarcity mindset is very crippling. Absolutely agree with you. Paul, love you too. Kate, Kathy, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, there is a link for the five days. Um, com. And before you register, just scroll down the page. Yeah, scroll down the page and have a look at other people's experiences. So before you register, before you, it's free. I mean, but it is time. I, I do value your time, although you might not think it today. <laughs> um, uh, before you register, just have a look at what other people's experiences were, but do get involved. You know, I, I, it is my, I, my life's work is to, is to bring these two worlds together, the spiritual and the economic, it really is. Well, we appreciate um, we appreciate that, and we appreciate uh, everyone's comments in the chat as well. And obviously, as always, appreciate all those listening to the podcast. Uh, new thing this week, um, which is good news, it's very quick, uh, and then we'll wrap up. Which is, I, I wanted to, I'm going to decide to ask every speaker who their favourite speaker of all time is. So we go and check them out if we don't know them already, other than yourself. Oh, and thank you for preparing me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, I don't know. Do you know? I think one of the one of the people who, or one of the TED talks I loved. Um, let me see, it must be in my history, um, was by the, the female founder of uh, Kiva.org. I don't know if anybody's come across Kiva.org. I just spelled Kiva. Uh, Jessica, I'm just I'm going to put the link right, in there. Um, so K-I-V-A, K-I-V-A.org. Yeah. And uh, Jessica's TED Talk was... It was one of the ones that had the most emotional impact on me. But I mean, you could probably ask me the same thing next week and I would say someone else. I, that's just, she just sprang into my heart. So I'm, I'm pretty certain that there's somebody in the room that needs to hear her TED talk. Um, well, that's good. That's good. That's, that's what we're after. Um, I mean, I'm going to put the link in the chat box. Yeah, do that. And I'll post it with the podcast as well, yeah. of course. Uh, like to thank everyone who attended today and uh, everyone for their uh, patience, but I've for one, think it's absolutely worth uh, hearing all of what Dylan has to say. So, uh, make no apologies for that. Um, uh, and all those listening to the podcast, a special thanks, of course, as always, to our speaker in this case is Dylan Nietzsche. Tune in next week. We'll be joined by the wonderful Lucy Fowler. Uh, he'll be talking to us about um, wills and deeds of trust and protecting your wealth and things like that. Mm -hmm.